Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Today's episode is yet another first for us, the first time we've ever taken a look back at the works of a specific actor during the decade. And we couldn't think of anyone more appropriate to cover the first time around than Miss Sigourney Weaver. Well, that's a bit of a lie. My wife and I recently did a Pixar watch and rewatch binge because we had kind of fallen out of seeing every Pixar movie in theaters after Inside Out. And as you may remember, Sigourney Weaver does voice work in both Wally and Finding Dory. And if you've seen Finding Dory, you know that she is the narrator of many exhibits at the Marine Institute. Hello. I'm Sigourney Weaver. And my wife, who incidentally does not listen to the podcast, said that I should consider an episode on Sigourney Weaver. Would she listen if I did an episode on Sigourney Weaver? No, but she would watch Working Girl with me if I decided to watch it. But not for Sigourney Weaver. She'll watch because she thinks Harrison Ford is at his hottest in Working Girl, especially when he has his shirt off in that one scene in his office. And while I don't necessarily disagree with her, I can mention it here and she'll never know because she'll never listen to the episode. Anyway, getting back to Miss Weaver... Susan Alexandra Weaver was born in New York City on October 8, 1949, to Elizabeth Inglis, an English actress, and Sylvester Weaver, better known as Pat Weaver, a television executive who literally changed how we watch TV. He created The Today Show in 1952 and The Tonight Show two years later. He developed the concept of the television commercial at a time when shows were sponsored by a single company, like how Geritol sponsored the quiz show 21 in the mid-50s, with the game being interrupted while it was being played so the host, Jack Barry, could pitch the elixir. Just a second, while I talk to the people, and then we'll continue on with our game of 21. Please don't talk, because your studios are both on the air. Oh, questions, questions. I guess I've asked thousands of questions at one time or another here on television. I don't, I'm not used to it yet, but there is one simple question that I think almost everybody asks everybody else. I think you know the question. What's the weather going to be like? Well, from the reports that we have had from all around the country, and especially right here in New York, it's been hot and cold and unseasonable, and it looks like we're really in for a tough, rough winter. And I think you know what that means, too. It means plenty of sickness. So will you remember, if you feel tired and run down, and especially after a cold, flu, sore throat, or virus, you may suffer from iron deficiency anemia. That's a very fancy term for what we call tired blood. Tired blood. You check with your doctor, and to feel stronger fast, take Geritol. Yep, that's how they used to advertise in the mid-50s before the commercial was born. Pat Weaver also believed broadcasters should educate as well as entertain. So it would be little wonder when... His younger daughter, Susan, would become an avid reader even as a young girl and would have a desire to become an actress before she started attending liberal arts prep schools as a teenager. When she was 14, Susan started going by the name Sigourney based on an unseen character mentioned only once in F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. At her prep school in Connecticut, Sigourney would play a number of roles in comedies like You Can't Take It With You and dramas like A Streetcar Named Desire. One time, she played the title character in the school's adaptation of the 1921 Rudolph Valentino movie, The Sheik. 
In the summers, when school was out, Weaver would stay in Connecticut to do summer stock shows. After graduation, she would travel to Israel and work on a kibitz for several months, what we would now call a gap year, before starting at Sarah Lawrence College. After one year, she would transfer to Stanford University, where she would major in English, but become heavily involved in a theater troupe who would perform Shakespeare and comedies for the people as they went from location to location in a covered wagon. She would not join Stanford's drama department because she was not interested in the pedestrian material they would produce. After graduating in 1972 with a B.A. in English, Weaver would be accepted in the prestigious Yale University School of Drama, where her classmates would include actor and playwright Christopher Durang and actresses Christine Estabrook and Meryl Streep. During her two years at Yale, she would find herself continually denied leading roles, with more than one teacher considering her to be talentless. She would get her best roles in plays written by Durang, which he would insist a certain role was written specifically for her. She would graduate from Yale with an MFA in acting in 1974, a full year before Streep, even though they both entered the program at the same time. And Sigourney would head back home to New York City to make it as an actress. Her first big chance on the Broadway stage would come in the 1975 adaptation of Somerset Maugham's The Constant Wife, directed for the stage by the legendary Sir John Gielgud and starring the legendary Ingrid Bergman. Weaver would be the understudy for the role of Marie Louise, and she would be the assistant stage manager on nights when she was not appearing on stage. When Durang would bring his 1974 absurdist play Titanic to New York City in May 1976, Sigourney would play the role of Lydia, the daughter of the captain of the Titanic, who keeps and feeds a variety of animals in her vagina. The show would open off-Broadway at the Van Damme Theater on May 10th and would close six days later. Undeterred, Durang would next mount a production of Das Lustiana Songspiel, a companion musical to Titanic, which he co-wrote with Weaver at Yale. That show would also open and close at the Van Damme in quick order. While she was working on various shows in New York, Weaver would get noticed by casting director Juliet Taylor, who was in the process of casting the newest Woody Allen movie, at the time called Anhedonia. When it was released in the theaters as Annie Hall in April 1977, audiences outside New York City would get their first glimpse of Weaver, who would make her screen debut as Allen's date in the final scene, when Alvy and Annie bump into each other outside the Talia Theater which is playing The Sorrow and the Pity. Weaver would have but 10 seconds of screen time and no dialogue, but she would get a credit in the movie and her SAG card. She would also get her first major screen role a year later in the drama Mad Men, which also starred Michael Beck and F. Murray Abraham. But it would be her third movie that would catapult her into stardom.
Initially, Veronica Cartwright was cast as Warrant Officer Ellen Ripley, and Weaver was looked at for the role of Nostromo's navigator Lambert. Weaver would initially read for the role of Lambert in Los Angeles, and was subsequently flown to London for a screen test with Ridley Scott on the movie's sets, which were in the process of being built. Scott saw something in the 28-year-old actress, and decided instead to have her read for Ripley. Cartwright would not learn that she was being moved on to the role of Lambert until she arrived for her costume fitting, and she almost walked off the film. Scott convinced her to stay, saying it was Lambert who would be a reflection of what the audience was feeling. When 20th Century Fox released Alien in America on May 25, 1979, it would become a smash hit, despite the film's R rating. Like Star Wars, which Fox had opened on the same date two years earlier, Alien would open on less than 100 screens in its first week. Like Star Wars, almost every print would be a 70mm print with a six-track magnetic Dolby Stereo soundtrack. And like Star Wars, the film would be so successful in those handful of theaters that many of them would alter their schedules on opening day to play the film continuously, 24 hours a day for the first several days. By April 1980, it would have grossed more than $100 million in America, according to an article about the film in the Los Angeles Times, and would be nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Production Design, which it would lose to fellow Fox release All That Jazz, and Best Visual Effects, which it would win against 1941, The Black Hole, Moonraker, and Star Trek The Motion Picture. Yet, Despite her newfound movie stardom, Sigourney Weaver did not rush to make a follow-up film. Once Alien finished production, she went back to the New York stages, and it wouldn't be until March 1980, 10 months after the release of Alien, and nearly 18 months since she shot her last scene for that film, when Weaver would step on to another movie set. Every day in the United States, 50 people are murdered. Few of the cases are ever solved. Only the best reach the 6 o'clock news. For TV reporter Tony Sokoloff, this man could be the key to her most important story. Or her last. Hello, police. William Hurt, Sigourney Weaver, Christopher Plummer, Eyewitness, rated R. British filmmaker Peter Yates and Serbian-American screenwriter Steve Teshish had worked together in 1979 on the comedic drama Breaking Away, which had become an unexpected sleeper hit for Fox in the summer of 1979. Wanting to get these two back together as quickly as possible, Fox would greenlight The Janitor Doesn't Dance, inspired by Tessius's four years as working as a janitor in East Chicago, Indiana, while going to college, to begin production in New York City at the end of March 1980. Weaver would be cast as Tony Sokolov, a New York City television reporter chasing the story of a murdered Vietnamese businessman, and William Hurt as a janitor in the building where the murder occurred. The reporter, thinking the janitor knows something, keeps pressing him for more information, and the janitor starts to come up with random statements to keep the reporter, with whom he is infatuated with, around. When the station airs some of these statements, including a few that make the killers think the janitor really does know something, the killers decide to take out both the janitor and the reporter to protect themselves. When the film began production, 
William Hurt was not a known commodity. His feature film debut, Altered States, would not get a theatrical release until December 1980, a mere six weeks before the release of Eyewitness. Despite having a knockout supporting cast, including Christopher Plummer, James Woods, Kenneth McMillan, Pamela Reed, Stephen Hill, and Morgan Freeman, and some very impressive reviews from many of the major newspapers, magazines, and television news programs, audiences just didn't go for the film. It would only gross $4.5 million against a budget of $8.5 million when it arrived in theaters in February of 1981. Eyewitness is a pretty damn good movie, and one I would highly recommend watching, but sadly, as of February 2021, the film is not available for streaming anywhere. It's never been released on Blu-ray in America, and the last time it came out on DVD here was back in 2005. You can get a European or Australian Region 2 Blu-ray if you have a region-free player. Her next film is my favorite film of hers. Hamilton, Guy. Occupation, journalist. Jakarta, first assignment as foreign correspondent. A reporter on the way in. You're an enemy here, Hamilton, like all Westerners. I felt sorry for you. Dumped in your first posting without contacts. Adrift, hoping to bluff your way through. But you won't. Guy Hamilton, right? Right. Billy Kwan. I did a lot of film work for Potter. Bryant, Gillian Edith. Occupation, assistant to military attaché. An insider on the way out. Oh, three weeks. To what? Till I go home. Where's that? London. Had enough of the trouble, say. I've been on the move five years. I'd like to go someplace and stay. One of director Peter Weir's best films, right up there with Master and Commander. The Year of Living Dangerously tells the story of Guy Hamilton, a neophyte Australian television journalist who was given his first major assignment covering the Indonesian capital of Jakarta, a city in turmoil. His predecessor has left without introducing Guy to any of the local contacts, and Guy has trouble enduring himself to the other foreign journalists in the area. Guy is Mel Gibson's best role. Yes, even better than Mad Max. Sigourney Weaver plays Jill Bryant, a British diplomat's assistant who has taken a liking to Guy even though she is about to leave Indonesia for England very soon. Guy and Jill begin a passionate affair just as the Muslim-led 30th of September movement attempts to overthrow the communist government of President Sukarno. Guy is assisted in Jakarta by a Chinese-Australian dwarf named Billy Kwan, played by Linda Hunt, who won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role. Weaver is stunning in the film, and it would solidify her place as a movie star, but alas, it would be the first of several roles where she should have been nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress, but was not. Weir wanted to shoot the film in Indonesia in early spring of 1982, but they were denied by the Indonesian government. Shooting would begin in the nearby Philippines in March of 1982, 
But after Gibson and Weir both received a number of death threats from Indonesian Muslims who incorrectly feared that the movie would be anti-Muslim, the shoot would move to Australia after five weeks and continue there for another six weeks. The film would set records when it opened in Australia in December 1982, but for some reason MGM decided to wait until January 21st, 1983 to open it in America, and then only on one screen, the Cinema One in Midtown Manhattan. But, oh man, that one screen would gross over $35,000 in just the first three days. It would not open in Los Angeles or any other city until four weeks later, when the film would expand to 690 theaters on February 18th, President's Day weekend, where it would gross $1.7 million. When the film was played out by December 1983, it would have grossed more than $10.27 million. Not the greatest of numbers, but enough to make Hollywood take better notice of its two young stars. Weaver's next film is arguably her worst movie of the decade. Partners and I are going to make the deal of the century. Now, here's a little something I kind of enjoy. Let's say you've had a rough day of uh, guerrilla warfare. The revolution's getting bogged down. You're hot. You're tired. You smell like you smell now. This bottle opener on the side here will open bottles of all nationalities. Police Navidad. Where the hell have all the good salesmen gone? Don't answer that management. Simply lock the target in a sight, and the rest is, well, easy. Order forms are in the catalog, gentlemen. I hope we can do business together. Mr. Munch, I believe that your one small sale will help make limited global warfare a reality well into the 90s. And we will all prosper accordingly. Get the money! We're in a battle to sell this plane, gentlemen. And the enemy is not Moscow. The enemy is Rockwell, Northrop, Lockheed. I don't want to be a part of that anymore. Take a couple of samples. Take them home, see if you like them, let me know how many you need, okay? I'm gonna give you a little touch-up. We're gonna show the Pentagon. We'll show the world. Chevy Chase, Sigourney Weaver, and Gregory Hines are going to make the deal of the century. Hey, we're not out to stick it to anybody. Screenwriter Paul Brickman, who had previously written Jonathan Demme's 1977 film Handle with Care and The Bad News Bears in Breaking Training, started writing Deal of the Century in 1979 after he noticed that most of the people who were the strongest critics of the U.S. Department of Defense and the military-industrial complex they had been creating for the previous 40 years had been three of the biggest U.S. generals in World War II. Dwight Eisenhower, Douglas MacArthur, and George Patton. But what was meant to be a comedy about war would fall flat under the direction of William Friedkin, whose best films were action films and dramas, not particularly comedy. Chevy Chase was the right actor for the lead role of Eddie Muntz, the small-time arms dealer who lucks his way into a large sale and then has second thoughts about his whole line of work. 
Weaver plays Catherine, the widow of Wallace Shawn's character, a sales rep for an American defense contractor driven to suicide by an uncertain military junta. The entire cast is wasted, including Gregory Hines, Richard Libertini, Richard Hurd, and even Ray Manzarek from The Doors. The film would open in first place the weekend of November 4, 1983, with a gross of $3.5 million from 1,217 theaters, which sounds good until you compare it to a movie that screenwriter Brickman had directed early in the year, a little movie called Risky Business, which had opened to $4.3 million in early, in early August on only 670 screens. But as bad as Deal of the Century was, Weaver's next movie would really show off her comedic skills. Ghosts, they're real, they're here. And someone's got to stop them. It's a job for professionals. It's a job for the Ghostbusters. Hey, anybody see a ghost? They're the best. Oh. The brave. The only. Ghostbusters. Coming to save the world this summer. We're ready to believe you. Who you gonna call? Rated PG. Ghostbusters was a movie that should not have worked. Dan Aykroyd's first pass at the script, then called Ghost Smashers, was written for himself and John Belushi, and was nearly twice as long as the average movie screenplay, and full of such complex ideas that director Ivan Reitman suggested it would cost $200 million to make in 1982 dollars, which would be around $551 million today. After Belushi died in March of 1982, Aykroyd would rework the script with Richard Pryor in mind to take Belushi's role. When Pryor passed, Aykroyd would rewrite the script again with an eye towards his former SNL co-star Bill Murray. Murray would agree to make the movie, and at a reduced rate, on the condition that Columbia Pictures would also finance a pet project of his, an adaptation of Somerset Mom's The Razor's Edge, which he co-wrote with director John Byram. Columbia would greenlight both movies, and while Murray was in Europe shooting The Razor's Edge, director Reitman would bring Caddyshack director and co-writer Harold Ramis in to help rework Aykroyd's screenplay. The three men would spend nearly a month at Aykroyd's house at Martha's Vineyard rewriting, an experience they enjoyed so much that Ramis was persuaded by Aykroyd and Reitman to join the cast as one of the Ghostbusters. Weaver would come in to the production rather late in the pre-production process, but she would be excited to be working with so many great comedic talents. And she would shine as Dana Barrett, the New York City cellist whose apartment would become ground zero for an interdimensional battle between the living and the dead. You don't need me to tell you how good of a movie Ghostbusters is, or how successful it was. But you do need me to play this one clip. That's a different look for you, isn't it? Are you the key master? 
Not that I know of. But while most of the stars of Ghostbusters were enjoying the movie's success, Weaver would be on stage in the original Broadway production of David Rabe's Hollywood-based dark comedy, Hurley Burley, directed by Mike Nichols, as part of a cast that also included William Hurt, Judith Ivey, Cynthia Nixon, Harvey Keitel, Jerry Stiller, and Christopher Walken. When her run in Hurley Burley was done, Weaver headed off to Europe to make her next movie, a French comedy called One Woman or Two, in which she would star with Gerard Depardieu and, of all people, Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Depardieu stars as an archaeologist who discovers the remains of a two-million-year-old Frenchwoman, and Weaver plays an American advertising executive who pretends to be a charity organization executive in order to fool the archaeologist into letting her company use the remains as a centerpiece in a perfume campaign. It would be Weaver's third comedy film in a row, and it would end up being her least successful film of the decade, not only because the film was completely in French, but because the film was completely lousy. Roger Ebert, in his half-star review of the film, would put it succinctly, Add it all up, and what you've got here is a waste of good electricity. I'm not talking about the electricity between the actors. I'm talking about the current to the projector. When she completed One Woman or Two in France, Weaver would remain in Europe for several more months, relaxing for a short time before working on two films back-to-back in England. The first would be an erotic thriller called Half Moon Street. Welcome to London, Dr. Slaughter. Dr. Slaughter has a PhD from Harvard and comes to us after three years' fieldwork in China. She's a brilliant scholar and a passionate mistress who's willing to do anything her lovers want. You know my real name? This is crazy. An escort agency sends me out on a date and I end up talking to Lord Bulbeck about China. Why don't you call me, Sam? He's intrigued by her mind, captivated by her body. She's everything he wants and needs. Two people from two different worlds. Can their love survive? Half Moon Street? Theirs was a world of convenience. I'll come by later. I'll tuck you in and I'll explain everything. They put me in the fucking maid's room. Oh, dear. I'll come to you. All right. Desire. Do you want me on the bicycle? Jealousy. Why didn't you return my call? Because I didn't want to see you. Why didn't you call me? Geneva was so close. Why didn't you come and see me? I wanted to. It just wasn't possible. Oh, I know. Something came up. Well, same here. I got laid. Oh, I'm not surprised. You know what? It was fantastic. In a bathroom being shaved with people watching? That really turns you on, doesn't it? Yes. Forgiveness. I'm totally out of character, Sam. I'm touched. Violence. (laughs) Sigourney Weaver, Michael Caine. Can their love survive? Half Moon Street? 
Bob Swaim, an American expatriate filmmaker who had been living in France for more than 20 years, would be hired to direct the film based on his success with the 1982 French police drama La Balance, which would literally change the direction of French police procedural dramas for the next 40 years. Production would begin in and around London in early August of 1985 and would continue for eight weeks. And although Half Moon Street is a real street in London's Mayfair district, the movie would shoot mostly at Elstree Studios outside London in order to maintain control of the tight shooting schedule. One major reason they needed to stay on schedule was that Weaver had an absolute start date of September 30th on her next film, which was shooting across town at Pinewood Studios. That film would cement Sigourney Weaver as a cinema icon. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. That's the plan. All right, I'm in. There's still no contact with the colony. The xenomorph may be involved. What exactly are we dealing with here? Just one of those things managed to wipe out my entire crew. Ready to get it on. Go! I mean, we got something here. Ripley. Don't be afraid. Come on. I don't know how you managed to stay alive, but these soldiers are here to protect you. It won't make any difference. What is that? I don't know. Nobody touched nothing. I got signals. I got readings. There's something moving in. It ain't us. Get them out of there. Of all the movies that have come out of this series, Aliens is my favorite. Of all the movies James Cameron has made, Aliens is my favorite. After the year of living dangerously, Aliens is my second favorite Sigourney Weaver movie. The film holds a special place in my heart, not just because Cameron made the best sci-fi action war movie ever, and not just because he and Weaver turned the blank slate character Ellen Ripley was in the first movie into a hero for the ages. Aliens will always be special to me in the way that many movies of the summer of 1986 will be special. That was the summer I found my first true calling, working at a movie theater. One of the great things about working at a movie theater, at least in the 80s and 90s, was that managers were supposed to screen every movie before they played it for a paying audience to make sure the prints were built correctly and that there, are, there were no other issues with the print itself. And a lot of those screenings you would watch alone and they could go from midnight to eight in the morning if you were the only person available and four films needed to be built and watched. But sometimes there'd be a movie that a lot of your coworkers would want to watch too. And in a small city like Santa Cruz and its suburbs, you might have dozens of people from your theater and your sister theaters come over to watch it with you. Aliens was one of those screenings. There must have been at least a hundred people from my theater, the Riverfront Twin, but also the Del Mar, the Rio, the 41st Avenue Playhouse, and the Aptos Twin. My co-workers. People I had gone to high school with who worked at other theaters. People I had never met before. They were always the best screenings. But that private, pre-opening, after-hours screening of Aliens 
in the big house at the Riverfront Twin Theater, will always and forever remain at the top of the list of all the screenings I ever did outside of the special private screenings I would do for Danny Elfman and the members of Oingo Boingo after their shows every time they came to town, because it was at that screening of Aliens where my boss asked me to become a manager. I've told the backstory of how I almost didn't even start working at the theater during our summer of 1986 miniseries, which we premiered back in July of 2020. If you want to hear the whole story, I encourage you to listen to episodes 16 through 18. But that night, I was almost ready to quit my job and head back to Los Angeles in a few weeks, uncertain about what my future might hold for me. And it changed the entire direction of my life. I don't know what my other life could have ended up like, but I do know that I have a great life now. Anyway, Aliens would become Weaver's second blockbuster in two years, grossing more than $85 million in America and another $72 million worldwide. And it would do something unexpected, especially for a sci-fi action war movie. It would nab Sigourney Weaver her first Academy Award nomination. 20th Century Fox would release both Aliens and Half Moon Street, And although Half Moon Street would shoot before Aliens, Fox executives decided to release that film three months after Aliens in the hopes of generating some extra excitement from having a second Sigourney Weaver movie in theaters while Aliens was still red hot. It wouldn't. Half Moon Street would open in 29 theaters in Los Angeles on September 26th and in 28 theaters in New York City on November 7th. But the film would only gross a total of $1.13 million after two months of release. Aliens would be in its 11th week of release on September 26th, where it was still playing in 924 theaters, and it would gross more than $1.04 million just that weekend. After filming three movies in a year, Weaver took two years off from the silver screen, spending much of that time playing Portia in a production of The Merchant of Venice at the Classic Stage Company, an intimate 199-seat live theater in New York City's East Village. But when she came back to the movies, she came back with a vengeance. December 16, 1966, Diane Fossey left a life of comfort and privilege and went alone into the mountains of Africa. Some of them believe a woman living alone up there has to be married. She was determined to make contact with the wild mountain gorillas and save them from extinction. Someone wanted her stopped. In a land of beauty, wonder, and danger, she risked her life. Get down! Don't move! She would follow a dream. You, my beautiful, becoming a legend. And fall in love. Do you think I'm weird? Yes, I do, absolutely, without question. I also think you are wonderful. But she would risk it all. No! 
save the gorillas in the mist. Are you responsible for kidnapping this animal? Deal of sale, madam. What are you doing? Give my gorillas the protection they're entitled to. Your gorillas. Am I a murderer? Did I do this? This won't stop until those butchers are stopped. Universal Pictures and Warner Brothers present Sigourney Weaver, Brian Brown, in the true story of one woman's incredible courage. Gorillas in the Mist. Work on Gorillas in the Mist would begin years before Weaver was ever approached for the role. In 1984, a production company called Fry's Entertainment started to work on adapting naturalist Diane Fossey's 1983 novel, Gorillas in the Mist, for Universal Pictures, eyeing the Black Stallion's director, Carol Ballard, or the Black Stallion's cinematographer, Caleb Deschanel, to direct, with someone like Deborah Winger to play Fossey. The producers had hoped Fossey would assist in the making of the film, but she would be murdered on December 26, 1985, as one of the producers was on their way to see her in Rwanda. Shortly after her death, another production company, Heritage Entertainment, contracted with Fossey's mother, Hazel, to develop a novel called The Strange Life and Death of Diane Fossey, with the publication of the book tied to the release of a movie. That book and movie would have been based on 18 years' worth of Fossey's diary entries and other materials that she would generate during her time studying and working with the Silverback Mountain Gorillas. And then at the same time Heritage started working on their Fosse project, a third biography entitled Heaven and Earth would be announced by Warner Brothers and the Goober Peters Company to be directed by Five Easy Pieces filmmaker Bob Raffleson. In early 1987, after Heritage announced that they would be turning their movie into a four-hour, two-part miniseries for CBS, Universal would sue Heritage, saying their working with Hazel Fossey violated an agreement Universal had with Miss Fossey to grant them first access to her daughter's biographical information, as well as a first-look option on any novel that would come from such a project. CBS would drop the project soon thereafter, although Heritage would defeat the lawsuit in 1988. In a rare sense of Hollywood clarity, Universal and Warner Brothers realized there was no need for competing Diane Fossey biographical films and would team together to produce the film at a budget of $24 million, which included the $4 million each studio had already invested in their competing projects before coming together. Universal would distribute the film in North America and Warner's in the rest of the world. Bob Raffleson would be chosen as the director of the combined movie, but he would leave the project soon thereafter. British filmmaker Michael Apted would be selected to replace him. The role of Diane Fossey was one of the most coveted roles in Hollywood at the time, with actresses such as Jane Fonda, Diane Keaton, Jessica Lange, and Vanessa Redgrave actively campaigning for the role. Weaver would be selected over all four Academy Award-winning actresses. Production would begin near Fosse's Karasoke Research Center in Rwanda 
on June 1st, 1987, and shoot there for eight weeks before moving to Kenya for another four weeks of production before moving to three weeks of interior shooting in London. But the production almost didn't happen. In mid-May 1987, while the filmmakers were setting up camp in Rwanda, the president of production at Warner's threatened to pull the plug on the film, worried that it had already gone $4 million over budget before a single frame of film had been exposed. Apted Weaver, producer Arnold Glimcher, and several other above-the-line crew on the film would agree to give up a combined $3 million of their salaries to keep the production going. The film would still end up going a bit over budget anyway, as Apted decided the best way to make the film was to follow real silverback mountain gorillas through the area around Fosse's remote camp. For several hours a day, Apted and his small crew, limited to five people including the director and the actress due to governmental restrictions, would follow behind the gorillas, documenting their foraging and playing. Two cameramen would film the gorillas, while Apted, Weaver, and a third cameraman filmed the main storyline nearby. Of the many scenes with the gorillas, only one scene in the movie did not feature a real gorilla. It would be a scene featuring the murder of Fosse's favorite gorilla, Digit. And that gorilla would be played by humans in four gorilla suits designed by the legendary makeup and effects wizard, Rick Baker, at a cost of nearly $4 million. The film would open in 15 theaters on September 23rd and would gross an astounding $366,000 in its first weekend. Its $24,461 per screen average would be nearly two and a half times more than the next highest per screen average film, Joan Micklin Silver's Crossing Delancey, which had grossed $950,000 from 95 theaters in its fifth week of release. Buoyed by the success of the first week engagements, Universal rushed to get the film into an additional 543 theaters for its second week, and the film would be the number one film in America with more than $3.45 million in ticket sales. The next highest grossing film, Chris Columbus's Heartbreak Hotel, would barely gross $2 million despite playing on nearly three times as, as many screens. Universal would expand the film again in its third week, adding another 523 theaters, with the film getting its widest release in week four when it played in 1,085 theaters in total. The film would start to peter out going into Thanksgiving weekend and would end its 15-week theatrical run with $24.7 million in ticket sales. Gorilla in the Mist's run in theaters would end just as her other movie of the year was opening in theaters. Once upon a time, there was a struggling secretary from Staten Island. There is no paper in this stall. Get me some. Who had a boss from hell. I'd love to help you, but you can't busy the quarterback with passing out the Gatorade. She was after a charming bachelor. Big Jack, come out to play. But he had his eye on someone else. What did happen exactly? The earth moved. The angels wept. Little swap! And that's where our story begins. Thank God I'm here. 
Catherine, what are... This woman is my secretary. You're not her secretary. You're like one of those crazed cops, aren't you? The kind nobody wants to ride with. His partners all end up dead or crazy. 20th Century Fox presents... Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver, Melanie Griffith, in a new film directed by Mike Nichols. You know, maybe I just don't like you. Me? Nah. <laughs> Working Girl. Inspiration comes in many forms, and the inspiration for Working Girl came to writer Kevin Wade and producer Douglas Wick when, while having breakfast one morning down by Wall Street, both men noticed a number of career women getting off the Staten Island Ferry who were wearing tennis shoes with their suits while carrying their high heels. The script they would come up with about a working-class young woman from Staten Island having trouble making it in the business world of Wall Street because she earned her degree from a second-level school in evening classes while she worked during the day as a secretary would start making the rounds in Hollywood in late 1986. Mike Nichols would be one of the first to see the script, and he really liked it, but he was already committed at the time to making a film version of Neil Simon's play Biloxi Blues, which he had directed on Broadway the previous year. Melanie Griffith, who would be enjoying a breakthrough as the lead in Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, really wanted the lead role of Tess McGill, but had to wait until Nichols was done shooting Biloxi Blues and committed to making Working Girl his next film before she could be seen for the role. Unbeknownst to her, Nichols wanted her, and only her, for the role of Tess, telling Fox executives he would not make the movie if she wasn't cast as Tess. Fox would agree, provided Nichols got two major stars to commit to the roles of Catherine Parker and Jack Trainer. Tessa's boss and love interest respectfully. Finding actors wanting to work with Mike Nichols was about the easiest thing anyone could do in Hollywood at the time. For Catherine, Nichols would cast as hurly-burly actress Weaver, while Harrison Ford, who had an opening in his schedule before he was needed for Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, would get the nod as Jack. While Nichols excelled at pretty much every genre he tackled, his being part of the most successful comedy team of the late 50s and early 60s with Elaine May pretty much ensured any comedy he would make would be great. And Working Girl is indeed one of Nichols' best films. Audiences would agree. Opening in 1,051 theaters on December 23, 1988, Working Girl would gross $4.7 million in its first three days. Its second weekend, New Year's weekend, the film would gross another $7.3 million. And while the film would never be the number one film in America any week it was playing, it would remain in the top 10 for 10 weeks and would remain in theaters for more than a year, grossing more than $63.7 million after 53 weeks. The movie would buck the trend of comedies being ignored during award season, and received six Academy Award nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress for Melanie Griffith, and Best Supporting Actress for Joan Cusack, and it would win the award for Best Song for Carly Simon's Let the River Run. For her work on Gorillas in the Mist, 
Weaver would receive her second nomination for Best Actress in three years, and she would receive her first nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Working Girl, becoming just the fifth actor in 61 years to be nominated for both lead and supporting roles in the same year. However, unlike the other four, Faye Bainter, Teresa Wright, Barry Fitzgerald, and Jessica Lange, Weaver would become the first dual nominee to not win either award. She would lose Best Actress to Jodie Foster in The Accused and lose Best Supporting Actress to Gina Davis in The Accidental Tourist. Her final film of the 1980s would be another hit for Weaver. Soon, America's largest city is going to pay for the nastiness of its inhabitants. slime starts to rise. The Titanic just arrived. When ghosts start arriving by the boatload. Who are you going to call? Sucking the guts, guys, with the Ghostbusters. Pose them. Who are you going to call? Ghostbusters 2. You're short. Your belly button sticks out too far. And you're a terrible burden on your poor mother. You're seeing things running through Bill your head. Dan Aykroyd. Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, and Ernie Hudson in an Ivan Reitman film. Ghostbusters 2. Columbia Pictures' desire to have a sequel to Ghostbusters started on the afternoon of its opening day, June 8, 1984, when the early box office reports from the East Coast showed they would have a huge hit. After several false starts that were incorrectly blamed on David Putnam, the British-born president of Columbia Pictures during 1986 and 1987, and the subject of a four-part miniseries of this podcast back in November and December 2020, Ghostbusters 2 would finally begin production in New York City in November 1988, after the cast agreed to cut their salaries in exchange for a rather large size of the box office gross in order to keep the budget in line with the original film's $30 million budget. While Weaver was one of the important pieces that made Ghostbusters work as well as it did, her role in the sequel was neither equal to her previous work nor to her stature as a worldwide movie star and Oscar-nominated actress. An early cut of the film spent a lot of time on Dana and Venkman's strained personal relationship, but was trimmed away to focus on the action promised in the title of the budding franchise, Ghostbusting. And with those trims, Dana became an adrift vessel, as it were, not as vital to the plot, and really only needed so her baby can be possessed by the baddie and wreak havoc on the world. While the film doesn't work as well as the original, fans didn't seem to care much. Opening on 2,410 screens, an 80% increase over the original film's first week release of 1,339 screens, Ghostbusters 2 would set a box office record for the highest non-holiday opening weekend gross with $29.5 million in its first three days. In its second week, it would set another record, shortest time as the record holder for the highest non-holiday opening weekend gross, when Tim Burton's Batman would gross $43.6 million in its first three days. 
Ghostbusters 2's $13.8 million gross that weekend would actually put it in third place, also behind another movie starring Rick Moranis, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which grossed $14.3 million that weekend, in large part to the added attraction of a new Roger Rabbit cartoon before the film. Ghostbusters 2 would continue to fall down the box office charts with each successive weekend as new blockbuster after new blockbuster flooded the market. The opening of Karate Kid 3 would knock Ghostbusters 2 to fourth place in its third week, and then the openings of Lethal Weapon 2 and Weekend at Bernie's would push it down to fifth place in week four. Week five found it dropping to seventh thanks to the new James Bond film License to Kill and yet another re-release of Peter Pan. In week seven, Ghostbusters 2 was out of the top ten, with Turner and Hooch and Friday the 13th Part 8, Jason Takes Manhattan, delivering the 1-2 knockout punch. While the original film would play in theaters for nearly a year, Ghostbusters 2 would be gone from most theaters within four months, with its $112.5 million gross being less than half the original's $229.2 million gross. After Ghostbusters 2 finished production in March 1989, Weaver would take a break from working after she discovered she was pregnant. Daughter Charlotte arrived in April 1990, and Weaver would return to work in January 1991, when she started shooting on David Fincher's Alien 3 in England. The five months of principal photography, often six days per week of 18-hour days, took their toll on the new mother. When Fox called for a month of reshoots to begin just before Christmas, Weaver made sure filming would happen on the Fox lot in Los Angeles, close to her home. But she would have to shave her head once again. Once filming on Alien 3 was completed, she would travel to Spain at the request of her old friend Ridley Scott to portray Queen Isabella in his film 1492, Conquest of Paradise, against her one-woman-or-two co-star, Gerard Depardieu. Scott had wanted to work with Weaver again since Alien, but had not found the right role for her until now. And even then, it almost didn't work out this time either. Although Weaver was always Scott's first choice for the role, the reshoots on Alien in Los Angeles almost forced him to cast someone else for the role, Angelica Houston. Once Ridley Scott knew when Weaver would complete Alien 3, he and his team would do some moving around of the shooting schedule to accommodate her availability. But she'd have to wear a wig to play the Queen of Spain, as her hair would not grow back in time. Weaver would make ten films in total in the 1990s, with the best being her two comedies, 1993's Dave and 1999's Galaxy Quest. There would also be a fourth Alien movie in 1997, and she would work with such acclaimed international directors as Roman Polanski and Ang Lee. The 2000s would see her in 15 movies, a mix of big-budget Hollywood features and tiny independent films. Her two best roles would come at the end of the decade when she provided the voice of the Axiom chip in Disney Pixar's WALL-E, and her second teaming with director James Cameron, Avatar. There'd be 17 films made during the 2010s, her busiest decade on screen. She'd re-team with Ridley Scott a third time for his epic retelling of the story of Moses, 
Exodus, Gods and Monsters. She'd be featured in one of the best horror movies of the decade, Drew Goddard's Cabin in the Woods, and she would cameo in Paul Feig's female-centric Ghostbusters film. She'd also make a memorable appearance as the bad guy in Marvel's Defender series in 2017. At the age of 70, Sigourney Weaver shows no sign of slowing down or taking it easy. She's already completed filming three potential blockbusters. Jason Reitman's new Ghostbusters movie, Afterlife, returning to the role of Dana Barrett, and Avatars 2 and 3 in a role that may or may not be the return of Dr. Grace Augustine, who died during the first film. We'll see. She also re-teamed with her Dave and Ice Storm co-star Kevin Klein, shooting The Good House, a drama about an alcoholic New England realtor whose life begins to unravel when she rekindles an old romance. The film was produced by Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment and Universal Pictures, was shot during the final weeks of 2019, and is expected to be released sometime in 2021. Sigourney Weaver remains one of our best actresses, always exciting to watch no matter how big or small her role is, and no matter how good or bad the movie she's appearing in is. Thank you for listening. On our next episode, we'll be taking a look back at the 1980 films of Oscar-winning filmmaker Barry Levinson. We'll talk again soon. The Film Jerk Podcast is researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night. <laughs>